June the 3rd, June the 3rd, 2012, lecture discussion number 69 and three quarters. Yeah, you heard right. You're watching it. 69 and three quarters is exactly right. I found myself stuck in Matthew 19. Now, I was worried about that. I thought it might happen, but I thought I could kind of shoot this little glancing blow at it and get by. But no, uh, I can't. I have been... I have been lambasted for trying. So I'm stuck in the mud, and I'm going to try to winch myself out of it today so that I can move on and get to Romans 5 as fast as I can. You'll see Romans 5 in the bulletin because I didn't think I was stuck as bad as I am with all of you. And it's my own doing, I know it, in case you feel sympathetic. Yeah, (laughs) that's silly. I, I (laughs) I don't even know why I brought it up. Okay, as you know, I I mentioned last week the three kinds of eunuchs. That sure got me in a lot of trouble. You can't even imagine the three kinds. Eunuch A, B, and C, three kinds of them. And and I did that along with the little children and the hard to accept saying and knowing full well that once I got it out there that I was going to have to deal with with the three kinds of eunuchs. That's where I thought I would do, at least, and kind of get that out of the way today, and I moved to Romans 5. But, um, no, it's gotten really bad. Um, so many have called me and asked me, saying, hey, you have gotten, last week, you have got to deal with the three kinds of eunuchs and the, and the camel and the needles and, and all of that. You connected Matthew 19 to James 2, and, and, and then you brought up the marriage contract to Deuteronomy. Let me just say really fast, since I'm winging it here, Anytime you see Deuteronomy in the Bible, you need to know that that is where the marriage contract between Israel and God is. That's the whole purpose of the book of Deuteronomy, is the marriage contract between God and Israel. And the marriage contract is brought up prominently in Matthew 19, where you see uh, Moses. In fact, it's it's, uh, Matthew 19 brings up Deuteronomy 24. There's Deuteronomy. So now you know that Matthew 19 has something to do with the marriage contract. It obviously does because of the divorce issue. So I brought all of that up along with the divorce trap question of the Pharisees and buried myself because of all the, all of the reaction. I have to say I was actually kind of, um, partially surprised pleasantly and surprised, uh, sadly that I'm stuck at Matthew 19 again. It's really cool that uh, that you guys are interested in it. It's also, I thought I did it before, a few years ago. All my notes seem to indicate that I did. But uh, anyway, one more week into the weeds of Matthew 19 and chasing butterflies or rabbits or insert your own appropriate allegory. And next week, maybe Romans 5. Uh, maybe. Not sure. We'll see how far we get. Admittedly, uh, this kind of sort of works out for me. I got to say that uh, you need to know this about what's going on. I'm I'm at 31 straight days of working. Today's the 31st day, and, and I'm becoming rummy. I really am. I have not had a day off for 31 straight days, uh, and uh, I wrote incoherent and goofy. And then I wrote, "How can you tell that from normal?" Um, I got seven more days to go. And that's why I'm not so sure what I'm going to do next week, especially with Lori gone. Seven more days of working straight, and then maybe I'll get the next Monday off, I'm hoping. And maybe even that Tuesday, we'll see. But Lori will be back, and that means what? That's right, reframe the front door, tear out uh, the side of the garage, pour gravel in the crawl space, all these things that Seth has been looking forward to doing with his mom side by side. We've got this device that actually locks them together while they work together. It'll be great. Anyway, but I'm 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 really kind of I'm almost exhausted, and and um, fortunately I'm doing relatively safe and mild projects. Well, what are we? Thirty feet in the air on scaffolding, aren't we, Bill? Yeah. Uh, we're doing uh, the soffits. The soffits are five-eighths, uh, they're three-foot soffits, they're five-eighths ply with a veneer on them, and we're doing the siding at the same time, and we're climbing up and down them. 
I had one day where I went up and down almost 50 times, and I was uh, then now singing Senior Ninja theme songs for myself. So, uh, anyway, it's a nail gun and ladders and scaffolding. What could possibly go wrong at, at our age? Anyway, having done Matthew 19 before, as I said, I, uh, I did it, I must have done it quickly and shallowly, 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 uh, as well, because, uh, obviously I didn't get it in very well. And uh, so I thought, okay, uh, let's, let's go ahead and blast away at it. And that will help me. I didn't have to do my usual 10 to 12 hour Saturday because I had all of it already pretty much written. And so that really did kind of help me, and that's why uh, I thought I'd do it again, uh, as well as the fact that so many of you wanted to know. So we're going to revisit it today, uh, reread a little bit of it, and see if we can figure out some of these more difficult questions that are bugging you. And uh, before, oh, uh, before I start, let me just say it this way: um, James and um, actually Karina of James and Karina came up after the lecture last Sunday and needed clarification on this little part, which made me really laugh. As I said it quite a few times, apparently, I looked it up to see how many times I wrote it, and I wrote it three times, so I might have said it 20 times, who knows. But I said this, three kinds of eunuchs, little children and camels, I'm sorry, three kinds of eunuchs, little children, camels, and needles. How many times did I say that last week? A lot. And, <laughs> and as per usual, if, if one of you is confused, that confused Karina, uh, three kinds of eunuchs, little children, camels, and needles. And if one of you is confused, then everyone is confused. And I thought I'd try it out on Lori. I said, uh, I said three kinds of eunuchs, uh, little children, camels, and needles. And she looked at me and she said, I had no idea what you're talking about. So Lord, I confused my own wife. Which, uh, and, and this is a classic case, by the way, of me uh, completely understanding myself. I, it made perfect sense to me. I've said it hundreds of times. It seemed straightforward to me. And so uh, it almost always makes perfect sense, everything I say to me, which isn't necessarily good. But apparently I was pretty much alone uh, in my uh, understanding of it, and that's almost always true as well. So if you understood it, thank you for understanding it. You have my greatest sympathies for thinking like me. (laughs) Anyway, three kinds of eunuchs, little children, camels, and needles, that is my method of, and I don't always say it that way. I, sometimes I do. I, I have another way I say Matthew 19. I looked it up and found my other way yesterday because I couldn't remember it. But that's my method of, of outlining the order of Matthew 19 subsequent to the divorce trap. So it starts out, Matthew 19 starts out with a divorce trap. And that's what sends you into Deuteronomy 24. And that's what lets you know that you're in the marriage contract between God and Israel. The, the Pharisees know they're in the marriage contract between God and Israel because they're the ones that bring up Deuteronomy and everyone there knows that that is marriage contract language, right? So they understand what they're doing. They know it, the, the context is God and Israel, even though it can apply individually and it can apply culturally to the nation of Israel at the time. So it could be personal divorces, if you will. And there's a debate between two uh, rabbis. We'll get to that and why they had that debate. But anyway, this is how I always do it, I, um, or try to do it. I just gave you the order of Matthew 19. First is the divorce trap question. Okay? Or, if you will, Deuteronomy, marriage contract. Second is this uh, better not to marry Okay, that what comes after the divorce trap is better not to marry. The disciples take the side of one of these rabbis. Better not to marry. Um, and then Christ says uh, something that is very important. He says, let me get all this on here first. He says, this saying. Okay, and you have to decide, what does he mean? He has four choices, or you have four choices. There is a saying that is very hard to accept in Matthew 19. What's the obvious question? Do you accept the saying? The other question is, what is the saying? And you have four choices. Figuring out what saying God is talking about there. And then, there's three kinds of eunuchs. That's what comes next. Did I spell eunuchs right? A lot of times I'll put an extra N in it. Um, 
And then there are, after the three kinds of eunuchs, come the little children. And this order is not accidental. What are we talking about here? We're not only talking about the words of God, we're talking about the word of God, and the order of God is ordained by God through the Holy Spirit, through the writer, right? All of this is perfect. The order is perfect. He starts out with a marriage contract. Then he goes, then the disciples say better not to marry, and then he says this saying is hard to accept. Three kinds of eunuchs, little children, and then what? You can add, I'll put the rich, I'll put the, the rich man or the rich young man Pharisee. I'll put them all in there. Some people will add ruler. Pharisee. Got it. And then finally, camels and needles. That is the order, if you will, of Matthew 19. Does that make sense to you? Obviously, the way I wrote it, or said it last week, made no sense, except to a few select people, one of them being myself. And the other one, oh, two. Oh, you tried to explain it. I'll, I'll, I'll continue along here. And by the way, this was a universal response. I'd say 90%. So if you're one of the 10%, you'll be taxed more. Okay, I'm kidding. Anyway, that is my process, or my technique, if you will, for illustrating the order that is Matthew 19. The categories which are Matthew 19. He has these categories in this perfect order. And the fact that he ends right here, this is the... Climax, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The camels and needles is how he ends Matthew 19. That's very, very important. It's a transition, obviously, to Matthew 20. But there's, there is my way of doing it. And hopefully I succeeded in one thing, that communicating that the underlying context of all of this, what holds this together is what? This is under the context of what? If you get into this, and I, every time I have somebody come up to me and they say, I have a divorce question, and I go, cool, and uh, I need you to explain to me Matthew 19. And so I start to explain Matthew 19, and they look at me and they go, well, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with my personal individual divorce. No, it doesn't. It's not about you. All of this is about marriage. The marriage Symbolism, if you will, or the marriage symbol, also called maiden, man, male and female, the marriage symbol. And inside the marriage ceremony, if you will, or the marriage symbol, something is placed by God. What did he place inside his betrothal system, his marriage system, if you will? What did he place? His symbol, or his symbol. He placed salvation. His plan of redemption. His redemptive work. So all of that has something to do with salvation. And everybody that was there understood that. We don't so much anymore because we are so removed from it. Salvation context, marriage, Adam and Eve, made male and female, all of that equals salvation in some form. It is up to us to understand it. And that means if it's all of it's that way, then the divorce trap is about a marriage. And the only marriage it can be about is the marriage between God and Israel, not individual marriage, because they bring up Deuteronomy 24, and they know Deuteronomy 24 is marriage contract language between God and Israel. Uh, better not to marry. Obviously, we have to deal with that. This saying uh, one of those four things that Christ says is hard to accept. We have to figure out which one that is. The three kinds of eunuchs must be about salvation. The little children must have a salvation context. The rich young Pharisee must have a salvation context, as well as camels and needles. And I hope that you got that last week. That's what my goal was. At least get that through to you, and then I knew you could figure it out on your own. You don't really need me. Okay? Ah. Uh. The camel and the eye and the needle is the culmination of Matthew 19. That's the, the climax or the closing scene, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, that is, with God, all things are possible. 
Okay? God makes something possible. That's very important. I can't put the word possible on there enough. God is going to make something possible that is not possible for man. And immediately you think about salvation, don't you? It's not possible because you have the impossibles, don't you? You have the possible versus the impossibles. Now you're back to where in the Bible? You can do this. You're back to Hebrews 4 or 6 4, right? Where the great impossible is. It's impossible for man to save himself. It's impossible for man to lose his salvation. Those are impossibles. There's also possibles. So you have possibles versus impossibles. The camel in the eye of the needle is a possible by God alone. So immediately you know it's about salvation because Hebrews 6.4 is about salvation. Isn't it fascinating how consistent the Bible is? God is so lucky. Okay, but the culmination is with God all things are possible. And that always is a salvation reference. Always. Maybe referencing something else, but first and foremost, it is talking about the salvation of, uh, or the redemption of human beings. And you must know, again, that all of Matthew 19 is marinated in the plan and means of God's gift of salvation to mankind. God making salvation possible. That's the male and female part. Don't disregard it. Again, it's the context. If you do disregard it, you start to focus on yourself and you think that the divorce question is about you and your particular relationship, then you are deeply in the ditch. Yes, sir. They are. Yes, they have two rabbis and they're trying to trap Christ and I'll get to that in just a second. So it's a very good question. Uh, Bill points out that they're arguing against themselves. They're doing it purposely. It isn't an honest question. They have a plan that Pharisees do. Okay, my, and my odd way of rattling off those after I finish divorce trap and better not to marry the saint. I, I kind of put these two into the divorce trap because I think that's where they belong. But after that's done, uh, then I say three kinds of eunuchs, little children, uh, and camels and needles because I put the rich young man Pharisee into the camels and needles uh, section. My other way of doing it, I looked up uh, yesterday, or the, uh, and I, I do it this way. I call it Pharisees, three kinds of eunuchs, little children, and Pharisees. And the first time I presented it, I, uh, to this group, I called it a Pharisee sandwich. Was anybody here when I did that? Wow, I must have done that a long time ago, huh? Didn't seem like that long. Jane pointed out the other day that she first saw me, where's Jane? She first saw me 37 years ago. And I went, man, I remember when she first saw me. So I spent most of Friday going 37 years ago. Isn't that scary? When's the first time you saw me, Cindy? Huh? So she saw me 45 years ago. Is that scary? No. How could that be mathematically possible? <laughs> and so do you. Thanks for, for going with the joke. <laughs> but isn't that amazing? And so I, I don't, I obviously I did Matthew 19 uh, back in the Bible class. I used to run a Bible class. And not so much with this group. But I used to call it Pharisees, three kinds of eunuchs, little children, Pharisees. It's a Pharisee sandwich. In other words, it starts with the Pharisees and ends with the Pharisees. And in between is this stuff if you will, this incredible wisdom. Or sometimes I say, uh, like I did last Sunday, a divorce trap, three kinds of eunuchs, little children, camels, and needles, which is the same thing. Both of those are the same thing to me. And I did not, I did not, let me say this clearly for the Internet people, uh, I did not intend to convey that the three kinds of eunuchs were little children eunuchs and camel eunuchs and needle eunuchs. I did not intend that, but I did it. Obviously, I did it exactly like that, and so I wanted to uh, try to preempt all the emails that are going to be coming. Um, and I could just I could just hear Sharon from Arizona and Jennifer. I'm sorry, Jennifer from Arizona and Sharon for tech, from Texas uh, having a delightful time slaughtering me over little children eunuchs and. 
camel eunuchs and needle eunuchs. So I wanted to get that off the air, uh, off the off the table, before we uh, get going on here. And for this is a good place. A couple of things. A bunch of people have been asking me questions. I got to get them all in. Uh, Kathy's uh, Lake of Fire omnipresent question. She wanted to know uh, if God is in the Lake of Fire. God's omnipresent. Is the Lake of Fire a physical entity? Did He make it? Okay, He's omnipresent. He's in the Lake of Fire. Those are physical beings in there. The first, the first people in the Lake of Fire, of course, are the. Uh, Antichrist and the false prophet, they're the first ones thrown in. They're resurrected and put in. He does that because he wants to make sure you know that physical beings are inside of the lake of fire. They're not spiritual beings. The lake of fire is filled with physical beings, mostly human. But we have to talk about what happens to the angelic host, by the way. Especially those who are fallen. Their physical beings are going to be inside of the lake of fire. And physical beings now require something. What do they require? They require a physical structure. Where does the physical structure come from? What's it made out of? Who holds it together? Is God inside of the lake of fire? Yes, he is. It's, um, he can't help it. He's omnipresent. Which is infinite, the lake of fire or God? God is. Which is bigger, the lake of fire or God? God has got to be, he holds the lake of fire. Can't help it. Definition of infinity, definition of omnipresence, right? I want you to start thinking about this, uh, and I'm just getting rid of it really fast, not really getting rid of it, because uh, uh, I, I know I'm causing you more questions than answers. But you have physical beings inside of a fire, and they're not be consumed by, they're tormented by the fire, but not consumed. What does that remind you of in the Bible? Yeah, I have three men in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace not tormented nor consumed. I have the bush that's not consumed. I have lots of things in fire that aren't consumed by fire. So we got to begin to to start associating those to try to figure out how this lake of fire actually works and what its purpose is. Um, Why God, is it a good idea to make a lake of fire? Oh yeah, it's got to be. God made it. He made it first, it says, for Satan and his fallen angels, those that went after him. But before I uh, go out to Matthew 19, I wanted to deal with that a little bit for Kathy's sake. And then I also, uh, Kathy in the front row, for those of you on the Internet, I also uh, came across this little uh, bit of unintentional truth, which kind of fits. I hope you'll see how it fits immediately. It doesn't kind of fit. It really does fit in our discussion, because our discussion here. In Matthew 19, ultimately becomes about a free will and the goodness of God. Okay, that's where it goes, uh, and I hope I can make that case stronger today, since it didn't do so well the last night, last time, uh, yet last week. But I came across this unintentional truth from the mayor of New York City, and I thought it uh, particularly apropos, uh, relevant to our discussion of God's goodness in the free will, and our free will, humanity's free will or omniscience and free will, which is the trap question, right? You understand that, you're in good shape. The mayor of New York City has decided it is necessary to better control his obviously very stupid subjects. His very stupid subjects, citizens of New York, seem to be ingesting way too much salt and way too much sugar for the mayor's liking, and for the liking of his ruling elite. And so the mayor of New York City has issued the following statement to the stupid common people. And I've got it here, and I will read it as best I can without laughing in the middle of it. It really isn't very funny after a while, but it's funny in the beginning. Here's what he says. It's astonishing. We, he says, we are not taking away your right to do things. Let me repeat. We are not taking away your right to do things. We are just forcing you to understand. Now, somebody wrote that for him. I can imagine the committee meeting. 
Okay. We have to write a statement for the mayor. We want him to say the following. We are not taking away your right to do things. We are just forcing you to understand. Wow. That's, that's amazing. But I want you to see what's happening. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help the mayor out here a little bit and his ruling elites in New York. And I know New York is a foreign country. Um, I, I can't even imagine what it is anymore. But I know people from New York and some people from Boston, and they do not think the rest of the world exists. They think only New York and only Boston exists, and that's it. There is no other valuable uh, humanity or concepts or philosophy or educational system outside of the city of New York or the city of Boston. They're both very provincial that way, and if you go there, uh, eventually uh, it will drive you crazy. But let me help out the mayor and the uh, and the leadership of New York. And I'm going to rephrase it. Um, I'm going to reword it, if you will, for the purposes of clarification so that you can see, I hope, what they're really saying. I'll rephrase it now. We are not taking away your free will. Your free will decisions and the consequences that may come from those. We are not taking that away. We are controlling you. We are ascending over you. We are making ourselves like the Most High. Please read Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. That's what they're really saying. See, I've been asking for the last few weeks to talk to you about individuals, especially in the church. Why would a pastor of a church want to control his folks? Why does he want control? Now, John and Kathy aren't here, but last time they were here, and we can't, we know it's almost summer because we have, we have Ken's parents here, and, and uh, we also know it's almost, and we have Debbie here, Dr. Debbie, and we know uh, John and Kathy when they come, now we'll know it is summer. But they went to a church, I don't know where, where the pastor declared that he was a millionaire. That's amazing to me. And that when he walks off, this just cracks me up. I I want to do this just in case we get a visitor. Um, When the pastor walks off the steps and comes down here, and he seems to do it often, then every man in the congregation has to stand up. Do you know about this, dudes? Oh, oh, I just wonder if Debbie knew. I I want that guy to come here. I really do. But, But could you imagine? Could you imagine in the past, and none of you stood up. <laughs> That's, thank God for that. I mean, a, John is a, you know, he's a strong man. He is a strong, intelligent man. He's not going for this at all. I can just imagine John in that. <laughs> anyway. Point in all of that is that that's astonishing to me, and I've always wondered why do churches want control? Because many do if not most, and it's a, it's a financial basis thing. So it makes perfect sense to me for a man to, to say that he's a millionaire and then walk down and want everybody to stand up and praise him. That fits for me. I understand that kind of thinking. Uh, and this is why the true church, or the, or the doctrinally sound church, for hundreds of years has fought socialism and communism in all its many forms. That's why it's done it. Uh, because socialism is fundamentally saying that the government will provide for you, will provide your needs, will provide your system of security. You can depend on the government. You do not have to make good free will decisions because the government will erase any and all bad decisions that you make. The government has replaced God, essentially. And, um, and the, the, the church no, immediately understood that was an aspect of socialism, replacing God, replacing uh, family, replacing the, the church, replacing anything they could with government. And so the government replacing God and controlling whom they see as inferior, because governments always see someone as inferior. That's it. You cannot miss. We are not taking away your rights. We are forcing you to understand that is uh, a superior explaining to the stupid inferiors that they're stupid. You can't miss it. It's an unintentional veering into uh, how he really feels and how his people feel. Now, what do they do? What do these governments eventually do to the inferior? What do governments always do to the inferior? 
Read Margaret Sanger. What do they always do? They always exterminate the inferior as they please. Absolutely right. Whether it's the very young or the very old or any that have any defect. They do not see people as spiritual beings. They see them as physical beings. Uh, And there's how your evolutionary philosophy, monism, fits in. One television commentator, I read his comments, he called this line from the mayor of New York, he called it sinister. And ultimately, he's calling it evil. And he is exactly right. Seeking to ascend into the place of God, seeking to control and crush the free will of others, irrespective of the supposed goodness of the intentions, will become evil. Quickly become evil. Always has. When I was, Bill and I were talking about this on the way to work. Um, When I was young, everyone knew this this sentence. Everyone knew it. The road to hell is paved. With good intentions. We all knew that. It wasn't about the intentions. It's about the results. We are an intention-based system now, not a results-based system. It doesn't matter how bad the results are as long as somebody means well. Well, your intentions can't mean well. And I look at the cities of this nation, and they may be past the tipping point, the, uh, the place of no return. They may be lost. I don't know how you save them now. Maybe you don't. Another thing I wanted to talk about was gravity. Uh, since this is my day of doing this, I'm doing it. Gravity, black holes and light and the curse and insects and angels, they all fit together. I want to talk about it. And I won't. Okay, other than to ask this. What makes you tired? Yeah. Okay, why do you need rest? Um, what force is making you tired? Uh, obviously, gravity is affecting me a great deal now. Just take a look. Right? Mean old Mr. Gravity. Why do you sweat and toil? Where am I in the Bible now? You're tired. You need rest. You're sweating. You're toiling. Where am I? I'm at the curse, aren't I? Okay? Say, for example, you are repeatedly climbing up and down 30 feet of scaffolding over and over and over and over again, say you're doing that, being senior ninja. What force are you fighting against as you're doing that? Yeah, you're fighting against gravity. Now, what's the obvious question? Yeah, the question is, is has gravity been modified? Is gravity different? By the way, which is more powerful, black hole or light? What is a black hole? It's, if, if nothing else, we have decided scientifically that a black hole is an extraordinarily powerful force of what? Gravitational. Yes, it's gravitational. Gravitational force. So I want to know, if gravity is making me tired every time I climb up and down the scaffolding, has it been modified? Specifically, has it been increased? And if so, when? And if so, why? What was the, what then was the intensity of the force prior to it being modified? So I'm into the pre-cursed gravitational force versus the post-cursed gravitational force, aren't I? And are angels subject to gravity? Um, we had a discussion last week. I won't get into it much other than to say someone was convinced. Uh, uh, they talked about others as well as perhaps themselves who had seen angels. Uh, I get this a lot. If I can see an angel, then what has happened to the angel? Something's happened to the angel. Uh, I can reflect light off of him, can't I? Because light is hitting that angel and coming into my eyes and getting into my brain, and my mind is evaluating that chemical as a apparition or as some kind of physical form. So I want to know, if I can see an angel, then he is, must be physical at that point, because light has to bounce off of him for me to see. Right? It's the vampire looking at the mirror thing. You've seen the movies. Does light bounce off of an angel so that I can physically see him? Or am I only seeing him in my mind? Now, can I hear him? If I can hear him, what's happening to him? He is subject to friction and vibration, isn't he? Okay? So he is, again, physical. Now, I want to know if he's going anything. Because if he's manipulating the physical reality, that's very important to me. 
I need to know these things before I can decide whether or not I'm actually seeing one. Right? Or am I just fooling myself? Is it just in my mind? Because if it's just in my mind, lots of things are in my mind. I need to know the difference. So, are angels subject to gravity? Are they subject to light, friction, vibration? What does this have to do with insects? Yeah, because if I have pre-force gravity, I'm sorry, pre-cursed gravity and post-cursed gravity, do I have pre-cursed insects? Do I? Start thinking about uh, Pandora, huh? Off you go. Enough of that. Matthew 19. Those were a few questions people gave me, and I wanted to knock them out. In case you think I don't pay attention to you. You know who you are. You know uh, who asked me those. And please tell others, yes, I really did do this. Okay, Matthew 19. Here we go. Let's read it really fast and see if we can finish this off. I'm going to read 19.3 because this is how it starts. The Pharisees also came to him. The Pharisees also came to him. Every time you see the Pharisees came to him, what do you know is going on? Every time. Do you think the Pharisees just happened to be there? No, it's a planned event. And they have come to him. They knew that he was doing something. What is he doing to the Pharisees? He's destroying them. They're not happy about it. He's cut into their... Think about a guy, Elliot Ness, if you will, except on an infinite scale against the mafia. I mean, he's tearing, he's busting all of their operations up. They're selling salvation. He's getting rid of it. He comes in and overturns their tables. He gets rid of their, their for sale perfect bird system, for sale perfect lamb system. So the Pharisees come to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reasons? Okay, the Pharisees come with what they think is a question that will cause Christ to be trapped. First and foremost, that's what they're doing. A question loaded with deliberate treachery. There is no honesty in this question at all. It's not an honest inquiry. If you ever read the Bible and you read something the Pharisees say to Christ, never say to yourself, wow, that's a good question. It's not a good question. It's a treacherous, dishonest trick. And it's very complicated, because what did they do? They spent hours in committee trying to figure out how to get through and defeat whoever this is. They didn't know. It's not an honest inquiry. It's not about divorce in the sense of so many that so many insist. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. Okay? Know that. And they ask this, is it lawful question? Let me reword it a little bit. Is it good? Is it permitted? Is it lawful? Is it proper to get rid of your wife? Good, lawful, proper, just, fair, permitted. That's what they're asking. To get rid of your wife. By the way, is this going on today? Oh, yeah. Both directions today. Is it good, permitted, lawful, fair, proper to cast off a wife? And whenever you see wife and the Pharisees and you see anything to do with the marriage, what do you automatically think they're talking about? Underneath it, on the deeper level, they know full well that they're headed towards Israel and God and God divorcing Israel. And is it good for God to cast off Israel for just any reason? Okay, and, and you need to know there's two, there's two guys, most commentators are going to tell you this, it doesn't take, uh, uh, you don't have to study too far to find them. You have Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, and I might not be now pronouncing uh, that correctly, and Shammai, essentially, two schools of thought. Hillel said, yes, get rid of her, no matter what the reason. It doesn't matter. 
If she argues with you, you can get rid of her. If, if there's any failure, any weakness, if you find her unattractive, you find her attitude bad, her behavior, she cooks badly, you can cast your wife off. It is lawful to cast her off for any reasons. That's what this famous rabbi that they all said, uh, um, that was his commentary. Now, Shammai had the opposite view. He said, no. You can't. You can't do that. Only sexual immorality. And that had to be defined, by the way. It didn't always mean uh, uh, adultery. In fact, most of the time it did not mean adultery. So you had these two schools of thought going on. And so right off the bat, they came knowing that they were going to eventually elevate this to God in Israel. But they start out, because guess what they have in front of them? A multitude of people. What do you think the split was in that society? How many of them said, yeah, get rid of her. She made bad soup. We can get rid of her. How many of you, how many people in that congregation that was following Christ around agreed with Hillel? How many agreed with Shema? Let's put it this way. You can get rid of her for any reason. The answer, yes. No, you can only get rid of her for some kind of sexual immorality. No, with the exception. So. How many, what percentage, let's say we got 10,000 people. How many of them do you think, how many, let's ask you this question. How many disciples do you think agreed with Hillel? Yes, you can get rid of her. Tells you. I'll read it to you. It says, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Which side did they come out on? What percentage do you think of that group out there said, yeah, throw, get rid of her, no matter what the reason? By the way, again, let's talk about our own wonderful society. What percentage says, sure, let's divorce any time we want. It doesn't matter. What percentage of Christians divorce for any reason whatsoever? doesn't matter. Christian divorces are as high as non-Christian divorces, if not higher. So we're in the same exact same situation. Same exact same situation? Is that redundant? I think it is. point of it is, is that a very high percentage said, yes, it's good, lawful, proper, just, fair, permitted to get rid of her for any reason. So they ask him that question. They're trying to trap him. They have many ways they're going to trap him. They're going to elevate it. If uh, That's what they want to do, in my view. That's my position on it because of Deuteronomy 24.1 coming in. But uh, also they see a possibility that they can alienate some of his followers, including his own disciples, right? Now, now, the question then becomes, whose position would Christ select? Because what they do, what they used to do is they get rid of her for any reason. They have two guys, right? Let's just say uh, uh, Pharisee 1 and Pharisee 2. Pharisee 1 would get rid of his wife, okay? And Pharisee 2 would take her. And so Pharisee 1 would divorce his wife, and Pharisee 2 would take his wife. What would Pharisee 2 do? He would divorce his own wife to take Pharisee 1's wife. Well, then who do you suppose would uh, uh, marry Pharisee 2's wife? Oh, that's right, Pharisee 1. So what do we have here? We have wife swapping. Would Christ say wife swapping is a good idea? When you read the Bible about the Pharisees, always think the worst. Never say the Pharisees, well, that's a really good question from the Pharisees. Or, man, those must be some pretty holy guys there. They, they sure look good and act good. Don't do that. Stop it. Never be a Pharisee. Figure out what the Pharisees are thinking and, and do the opposite. You'll be fine. But who would he select, Christ? Would he select the wife-swapping liberal or the strict conservatives? And the disciples went with the wife-swapping. I think that's obvious. Ultimately, this escalates, as I said, to God giving Israel a bill of divorcement for adultery. And um, or it, So the question becomes, was it good for the omniscient God to divorce his chosen wife, the people of Israel, for behavior that God predestined? Or, and, and so you end up in that discussion, as I said last week. And that's why I said, uh, that's how I got to made male and female, if you remember. Made male and female... That is, in the beginning, from the beginning, 
God made them male and female. Why did he make them male and female? How is that an answer to, is it permitted or is it good for the omniscient God to divorce his chosen wife, people, Israel, for behavior that God knew about and may have even predestined? And Christ says, haven't you not read at the beginning he made them male and female? What's male and female? What, who did he make male and female at the beginning? Who? Adam and Eve. Why did he make them? Why did he put Adam into a deep sleep? Some would say death, and I wouldn't even want to argue the case because I think they're right. Why did they put Adam into a deep sleep? Why did he do that? And then reach into the side, the cella, not the rib. It means the side. Reach into the side of Adam and pull out bone and flesh and build Eve. Why did he do that? What's the purpose? At the beginning, he did it. Okay? You see this. This is the bridegroom, isn't it? Adam is the bride. Whoops. Groom. Eve is the bride. Out of the side, out of the death of the bridegroom, I build the wife with blood, right? And flesh. And the, and the bride becomes bone of bone, flesh of flesh. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the salvation system, aren't I? From the beginning, he made them male and female, and he made it what for salvation to occur? God made salvation what? What's the word? Possible. From the beginning, God makes salvation possible. That's what Christ is saying to the Pharisees. They're saying, is it good for God to divorce Israel for any reason? And he answers, God makes, made, sorry, from the beginning, God made salvation possible. And there's your Revelation 13, I hope it's 13, 8 or 9, somewhere in there. From the beginning, God made salvation possible. What's that? From the beginning, God is what? He's pure good. And it is impossible for pure good to sin. Impossible. So, God is absolute good and cannot sin. Omniperfection cannot sin. God made them male and female from the beginning. And they answer back now. They say, okay, then why did Moses, why did Moses command divorce? Now, Is that a good question? No, it can't be a good question. Why can't it be a good question? Because the Pharisees asked it. It can't be a good question. It's not a good question. It's an evil, nasty, rotten, treacherous question. Okay? I know. I know. I shouldn't trick you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sometimes I put a rake on the floor to see if anyone will step on it, and, and yes, it happens. <laughs> Moses didn't command divorce. It's a lie. And Christ fixes it, doesn't he? Christ says, uh, they, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of your free will, permitted divorce. Hardness of heart, if you remember from last week. How do you get hardness of heart? You choose hardness of heart. You have the will to choose it. Hardness of heart, free will to choose sin. Moses permitted divorce because of free will. So that's the discussion that we're having. Okay, everybody got that so far. We've now reviewed from last week all the way to here so that we could go forward. Now we're going to read the rest of this. The hard part. Let me erase this. I only have a few minutes. As I did the other stuff. Because I was forced to. 
Here is the rest of this, the rest of the story, if you will, the Paul Harvey said part. And I say to you, let me start at eight. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wife. Did not command it. So what is permission, if you will? What is God permitting? Because Moses is in the God position here, isn't he? He is, he, God through Moses is allowing what? What's he allowing? He's allowing divorce, isn't he? What's he allowing? What's he consider divorce? This is, now you're in a discussion of God's allowing something. What's he allowing ultimately? Where do I go after I get the divorce? Where do I go next? Why does God allow sin? That's the question. Why does God allow sin? What's the answer? Because of the hardness of your heart. What's that? Free will. Why does God allow sin? Because of free will. People will tell you it's not in the Bible. Why does God allow evil? Let me put it that way. Because of what? The hardness of the hearts of who? Man. There's your answer. It's over. It's all. You can't miss it. But yet everybody misses it. Why does God allow a tsunami to kill a whole bunch of innocent people? What's the premise? Are there any innocent people? What caused the tsunami? Hardness of heart. Does God allow sin to go on? Yes, He does. Why? Because it has something to do with the free will of His created. So the real question becomes is why does He allow free will? How long will he allow sin? Those are your real questions. That's where you go. This, why does God allow evil? That is beginning kindergarten Bible study. Why does God allow free will? Now you're in the fourth or fifth grade. Will he end sin? Why? Now you're in the seventh grade. When? Now you can write a book. Sell it to all the others. Okay, now, so let me go back. He said to him, they said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, and from the beginning it was not so. Because from the beginning was what? Male and female. What's male and female? Goodness. What, how come? Because it's salvation. He made possible salvation, right? Except for sexual immorality. That also means mostly fornication. Does not mean adultery. Fornication. So what is the wife doing? And marries another, commits... Okay, but I said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her uh, who is divorced commits adultery. Now we're into wife swapping. If, see, we, that's what the problem is. I have people read that to me all the time, and they think it applies to them. And I go, really, does that apply to you? Are you a Pharisee? Okay, maybe you are. And his disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. We don't want to marry anybody now because we can't get rid of him for any reason. And we want to get rid of him for any reason because we go with the guy, the liberal guy, Hillel, right? How good of disciples we got here? These are classic pastors. People ask me all the time, why did God choose so many idiots to be pastors? We're all he's got. He's got to choose idiots. Everyone who lined up is an idiot. I can prove it. That's projection. I don't. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. Okay, which saying are we talking about now? We've got to figure that out, don't we? but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, you can only accept this saying, whatever saying it is, if it's been given to you to accept it. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. For the kingdom of heaven's sakes, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Okay, so now comes the great debate over this saying. 
You've got to decide this saying. This is, there's a hard saying in here. What is it? Well, here's our choices. Saint, verse 9 is our first one. Most people agree that he's talking about verse 9. Let me read that again for you. And you can decide if you agree. And I say to you, whoever divorces, wife, divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. It's this saying, that is the this saying, verse 9. Here's your other choice. Verse 6. So then there are no longer two... I'm sorry, I did that wrong, didn't I? Yes, no, that's right. So then there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So your choice is in verse 6 is the saying that no one can accept. Or your choice is verse 4. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and then the two shall become one flesh. So verse 4 and 5 is the saying that not very many people can accept. That it's hard to accept. Okay? And then some will say 8. Moses, because of your free will, permitted sin. Verse 8 is the hard saying. Or finally, you can have verse 12 is the hard saying. The three kinds of eunuchs. Number one vote among the commentators is this guy. Okay? So I just say that to you to make you what? Suspicious of it right off the bat. Okay, good. That's what we're trying to do. So there's a hard saying. Let me repeat what he says. All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. So which one is it? We'll keep track. Here's the deal. I've done this once in my life. Okay, I won't do it. You know what I was going to do. All in favor of verse 9, I want you to move over here. Sit here. I'm trying to split up a husband and a wife to see if I can never. Okay. I did that once. It was great fun. But with show of hands, never raise your hand here. What, are you crazy? Show of hands. How many of you think verse 9 is the one, is the saying that no one can accept unless it's given to them? How many think it's verse 6 that no one can accept unless it's given to them? How many think it's verse 4 and 5 that no one can accept unless it's given to them? How many can say it's verse 8? Verse 9. A wonderful job. Oops. Oh, verse 12, sorry. Verse 12. Two votes, two votes who say that the hard saying that people cannot accept are the three types of eunuchs. Because it starts with accept and ends with accept. Which one is about salvation? Because it's hard to accept a free gift of salvation, isn't it? Unless it's what? Especially it's given to you. It's hard to accept a gift of salvation. Is it hard to accept a gift of salvation? Salvation, is it hard? You would think it's not hard. How many people are saved? Not very many. Yeah, it's very hard to accept the free gift of salvation. Which one of those means the free gift of salvation? I am out of time. What kinds of eunuchs do I have? <laughs> Camels, little children, and needles. Yeah, no, I have, I have eunuchs that are born. I have eunuchs that are made eunuchs by men, right? And then I have eunuchs who make themselves. What is that about? Okay. Can salvation be... Can, can you be born into salvation? Can you be made into salvation by a man? Can you make yourself saved? So is this about salvation? Okay. But it has to be somehow in a salvation context because the whole chapter is about salvation, isn't it? Now, who said this? Jesus Christ said it. John, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ said it. Uh, God himself said it. I'm going to propose to you that he knew a eunuch that was born. I'm going to propose to you that he knew a eunuch that, a, a eunuch that was castrated by men. 
and made a eunuch. And I'm going to tell you that he knew someone who made themselves a eunuch. Now, it could be figurative. It could be literal in all cases. It could be figurative in some cases. It could be literal in other cases. But give me somebody you know that was born of a woman saved. Now, you know, as soon as that child came out of that womb, that that child was a saved child. You have evidence that it was a saved child while it was in the womb. Who's that? Well, that's true. Christ, of course, is God. But what human being? Huh? John the Baptist. Okay. We have a man, a great man of Scripture that is castrated by Nebuchadnezzar. Who's that? Daniel. The whole court of Daniel, if you will, or the entire, relig- or the entire ruling class, every single man that was ca- captured by Nebuchadnezzar was immediately castrated. Why did he do it? Because he didn't want him to produce a king of, Jew- of Israel. He didn't want to have to deal with that. So he makes it impossible. Who said it is better not to be married? So, I just proposed that for you to let you know that it is more complicated than you think. Is it figurative? Is it literal? Are they actual people? And next week, I'll finish it. Let's rise and be dismissed.